0: Are you at your point where you think you've hit your bottom or maybe that there's just no way you're ever going to feel like things can change? I was like that. I really was. And I want you to know, my name is Bromo, by the way. I want you to know that there is a way out. Please join us for my podcasts. Hey, all right. It's Bromo here. It's my second uh, segment of There Is A Way Out. Second time around. I'll repeat what I said yesterday. There is a way out. I did this about five years ago for a different company, and I had to start all over because now I'm with a company called Town Square Media, which is gracious enough to let me do my podcast again, so I have to retell my whole story. <laughs> if you've heard my story before, uh, I'm, I hope you'll bear with me and listen to it again. I am not an expert, I'm not a doctor. There is a way out, it's designed for anybody who feels they may uh, have a problem with addiction, with drinking. That is uh, purely my addiction, was drinking. But if my feeling addiction goes with drinking, drugs, anything, that you feel your life is being torn apart. And uh, also I do this for anyone who, like I said, feels like they might be on the edge, Maybe they have a friend or a family member that uh, they feel may be in trouble. So I uh, would love it if somebody listens to my story, and then later on I'll have guests and things like that where uh, we will talk about ways that there is a way out. Does that make sense? Yesterday, I actually mentioned a lot about my childhood growing up. I was the kid in high school that nobody knew. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the year, when yearbooks are being floated around to sign and the blonde in front of me would turn around and say, are you new here? Nope. I've been sitting behind you. all. Okay. Could you pass this to uh, Betty Charming behind you? Sure. There you go. So I had a few select friends, like I said, and I didn't, uh, wasn't around alcohol or booze at all. That one time, one time only, uh, when a few of my friends got together and uh, they, Mr. Bartender, who thought he was clever, put all these drinks together in this one cup and we passed it around and drank it and it was awful. And I couldn't even ride my bicycle home. Forgot to tell you another story. The first time I ever got drunk was a designed intention to get me drunk by a friend that was three years older than me. I think I was probably uh, 15, 16 years old. Put it this way. This is when uh, Peter Frampton was huge, the singer. And my friend, Who's got a car? Uh, tells me, hey, um, we're gonna go hang out at the little league field. I'm like, I know it's, but yeah, I'm I'm all up for that. It's dark though. And he goes, so what? And he brought he bought and brought a six pack of Lowenbrow <laughs> beer. And I remember drinking three of those in a dugout in a darkened little league field in San Diego. And um, thoughts. Well, thoughts. He dragged me into a Denny's where the table right next to us was about four police officers. And apparently I was talking way too much, way too loud. My friend kept telling me, shh, shut up, shh. Later on that night when I called my mom up and I'm sure she knew something was going on. Now, this is is my best friend at the time who lived right around the block from my house. I called my mom up. Hey, mom, I'm gonna spend the night at Craig's house. I'm doing good. How are you? Ah, okay, is that all right, mom? If I spend the night? Yes, I told you five times already. So we lay down getting ready to hit the hay. I'm on the floor with a sleeping bag. And he puts on Do You Feel Like We Do from Peter Frampton. Now, I know you know that song. It's about an 11-minute song. Well, that song seemed like it was going on for about 24 hours. Halfway through that song, I started getting the spins. <laughs> bad. My head was going from side to side, bad, bad, bad. I stood up, rushed into the restroom and threw up for about 5 hours. That was the first time I remember being drunk. And once again, it was wasn't fun. It wasn't what I what it wasn't appealing to me. I know a lot of people when they first start out, it's exciting and all that stuff, but Remember, I didn't have a whole lot of friends, so there really was no attraction to getting drunk. I didn't like the taste of it at all. So picking up from yesterday, uh, after my dad and I moved to Guadalajara when I was 18, comes we come back and um, I ran my first marathon ever at a time of four hours and seven minutes because I had only trained like 20 miles a week. And um, that was back in the day when Donna Summers was big. I remember running that marathon with these big, huge headphones. <laughs> those big, huge headphones as big as my head. And I must have heard that, turn on my heart. How does that Donna Summer song, um, um, not turn on your heart, it's uh, the Donna Summer song that goes on forever, disco-ish. It was a disco-ish Donna Summer song. I remember hearing that about five times during the race because I was listening to a radio station that repeats you know, the top ten songs of the country or whatever it was. And um, so I get done with this marathon. My dad and I moved back to San Diego, and now I'm in my 20s. And I realized to myself, you know what? Uh, running is not too bad. I'm starting to see a little uh, progression. I'm starting to see some, uh, I'm starting to compete. I, I ran for uh, Mesa College, which is a junior college in San Diego, and I was the last guy on the team. You know, I didn't have any high school running behind underneath my belt, if that makes any sense. So, I started running for this uh, cross country team, and um, I realized the beauty of the sport. First of all, of course, it is an individual sport. Yes, it's a team sport when you're running cross country, but man, I'll tell you, if you put in the work, you'll start seeing some results. And I did. I started getting my time down. I started running a, uh, more on my own, started running um, more miles a week. And, um, uh, I think I was about 127 pounds, and we all know chicks dig the skinny guys who could barely fit a watch on his wrist. <laughs> so uh, my times are getting better, and uh, still, I'm not drinking at all. My dad and my sister would go out, and they'd have pizza and things like that, and she'd have wine or whatever, and he would have his beers. You know, my dad was a school principal, and I know that was a lot of pressure. You know, I guess when you deal with kids all day long, and then you come home to a dopey kid like me. I remember seeing several times my dad would come home, and uh, he had way too much. You know, I just see him come in and slop down on the couch. Uh, I don't remember seeing a tremendous amount of alcohol in the refrigerator, but it was there. And there was a point where I was starting to worry about my dad thinking that maybe—not um, thinking that he had a problem, but maybe um, he's— doing this every single night, coming home later and later and later. He's a school principal and then goes to work the next day. But once again, I didn't give it much thought. So I'm running, um, my second year in cross country, I, I took a year off in between that. And I come back and I'm number one guy in on the team. And I'm pretty happy, you know? And I have uh, now progressed to running marathons, which is where I'm running at least 100 miles a week. And I've run Boston a couple of times. And so my marathon times are getting better and better and better And I'm getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And uh, I got my mom running into it. And then she started really enjoying it. She ran 14, 15, I think, marathons in her lifetime, including New York City, three times. Like I said, I ran Boston three times. and I ran New York once. In the span of running, uh, you know, here's how I found out really later on when I thought about it, how I'm an addictive person. Man, I kept track of everything. I had a diary. I think it was Jim Fix or whatever the guy's name is. There was a picture of a foot on a diary. I had that. I kept track of the weather, uh, what kind of shoes I wore, what time I I ran. Uh, I I took uh, my pulse. Pulse rate when I woke up in the morning, I kept, I logged that I logged how long it would take me to run 10 miles. And then I would run, all, I log all the information from my races. I was addictive. I'll tell you what, if there's one day where, um, you know, I had a shin that was bothering me and my mind kept telling me, you should take the day off. And the other part of my mind says, don't. You can't take a day off. You'll lose all that training. I was pretty much addicted to running. I had the lifestyle now because I started working in a restaurant Called the Chart House, which is, was an awesome place, steak and seafood place. And so uh, I would bring my running gear into the restaurant and uh, go out and run twenty miles, and come back and then work a busy Sunday. Um, and I would I was doing that for quite a while. And again, I was not around alcohol. I saw it, but I didn't didn't have that taste for it until I got hurt. And when I got hurt, I'm talking about I had a sciatic nerve that went down my back into my right leg. And it happened after I ran in a relay race where there was five of us. We ran from Takati to Ensenada, I think it was. And it was a relay race where one person runs a leg of six miles. Then the other guy gets out of the van and he runs his six miles. So on and so on and so on. I did three segments of six miles each at race pace, which was like five 515, 520 a mile up these rugged hills. After that race, I was shot. My sciatic nerve flared. My uh, back uh, was extremely sore. And I remember I it put a complete halt to my running. And thinking way back when, maybe I tried to run again and I still couldn't get that, that uh, my gait down because my right leg was in such pain. And I saw all these specialists and this and that. Oh, you need an orthotic in your foot, in your shoe. Tried that. Because for those of you who have run before, you know when you pronate, there are different styles I pronate. But nothing solved the sciatic nerve. Another reason, I never stretched because I hated stretching. Boring as you know what. So I just go out and run. But uh, that stayed with me and I stopped running. And when I stopped running... I needed an outlet and this is me trying to be theorizing everything. I needed an outlet, you know, for my energy, for my addictive personality. And so one day I'm washing dishes in the back and it's hotter than you know what because it's in the uh, kitchen and in the kitchen of a restaurant, it's busy. People are bustling around with plates and stuff and they're throwing plates at you and you're washing dishes and I remember to this day, don't know her name. I'll just call her Barbie. Barbie was a blonde cocktail waitress who came in with a clear green glass and said, this is from the bartender. And I remember looking at it and it looked refreshing, but at that point I didn't care because I was just mainly smiling and trying to act cool and uh, handsome, which I was not. And I said, thank you there, Barbie. Awesome. And it was the best Couple of gulps of a drink I've ever had, and it was ice cold beer. And something rang a bell in my head. Man, ice, this is good. I gulped that beer down in about 1.5 seconds. And I remember after that, we, when we were done with the restaurant, restaurant people are unique. A lot of restaurants get together afterwards. When you work in a restaurant, you bond with other people, you become friends. I still have great friends from the restaurant today, some of my best friends. Some of us would go over to someone's house afterwards, and this is late because you'd get done cleaning up from the restaurant, get out of there at midnight, you go over to someone's house, watching some stupid movie, eating Mexican food and drinking beer. And that's the habit I got into for a while. Started getting home around 2.30 or 3 in the morning, sleeping in like a slob, waking up, going to get uh, two tacos from Jack in a Box for 99 cents. Go back to work, do the same thing all over again. The parties were at like that. weren't really parties. There were just a bunch of us slobs from the from the restaurant getting together and just burning off energy after a hard hard night of work. And um, yeah, sure, I would leave someone's house after three or four beers. Didn't even think about it. Um, and I was doing that on a, on a uh, you know five to six day habit. Um, at this point. My dad in the other room, and I, I forgot how old I was, mid-20s, mid late-20s, my dad in the other room yells out, Bromo! And my dad had a booming radio voice, Bromo! And I go, what? And I, I He goes, come in here. And I came walking in and he starts reading me an ad about American Dream Broadcasting School. It was an ocean beach, which of course is by the water in San Diego. And I said, what? I want you to give this number a call. I want you to, you have a great voice. No, I don't. My dad had the radio voice. You have a great voice. I want you to take this uh, radio broadcasting class and get yourself into radio. You'd be awesome. Well, he didn't really use awesome. I don't think anybody used that word awesome back then. So we call the number up and I'm talking to the gal on the phone. Next thing I know, my dad has signed me up for class. American Dream Broadcasting School in Ocean Beach. In the back of a tanning salon, the guy held it. (laughs) He did. They had a divided wall. He was in the back next to the alleyway. He was the only, uh, he was the teacher. And he was was a weekday evening guy at one of the radio stations. And I was the guy's only student in the daytime. Because remember, this guy just started the school up. And we would go in, and he would hand me a used radio book, you know, from a college that he bought probably for five cents, a bulk of those used school broadcasting books. All right, let's go through uh, chapter one. I'll tell you what, let take your book. I'm assuming you went over chapter one. Yeah. Let's go walk along the beach, and we'll talk about what was in chapter one. And there we go. We're going to walk along the beach. So... What do you think about, oh, look at that blonde over there. Damn. And, of course, uh, that was our class. We would walk along the beach, and then I would wind up buying him breakfast, go back to the little studio in back of the tanning salon, and finish up. At the end of six weeks, they had me make an air check tape of myself, and I sent that out to radio stations around... Southern California. Because, you know, at that point, I didn't want to really move. You have to commit yourself if you want to get into radio when you're starting out. If you want to move, you got to move. And I didn't want to really want to move. So I sent my tapes out to these tiny little cities, suburbs outside of San Diego. There's one one place called Brawley, which I believe was about 120 miles outside of San Diego. Brawley with a population of about 12 and three dogs. And I remember they wrote me back When they got the tape, they wrote me back, dear Bromwell, thank you for your interest in uh, K-Fan or whatever, or K-Frog or K-Brawly. We don't have any openings right now. They should have put in parentheses. We never will. Perhaps you'd be better off in a smaller market. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember thinking smaller market than Brawly. I tried that for a while. Uh, doing the radio thing and, you know, uh, sending my tapes out and getting discouraged. Still working at the restaurant. Still having fun. Still getting rolled tacos and Mexican food and drinking beer. Keeping that steady. And uh, I I didn't have a problem with booze. I was having a great time. And I was driving home a lot with one or two beers over the lemon, I'm sure. I'm sure. At this point... I was getting frustrated with my teacher cuz I wasn't landing a job anywhere. I No, when are you going to be on the radio and be a star? I don't know, dad. They keep rejecting me. So, I went to my teacher and I was mad. I said, "Listen, this when is when do I get my diploma, by the way? And I haven't had a job yet." Well, he went to his boss and he said, "Look, this guy's a real pain in the neck. Do we have anything for this guy? Can we can we offer him up anything?" And yeah, they offered me something up. They offered me to be an intern, which is for free, for a morning show in San Diego, which I had never heard of. Because keep in mind now, I've got that radio, I got that uh, restaurant lifestyle where I'm staying up late and getting up late. So I don't know what's going on in radio. I don't know who's on the air on what station. So he lines me up, he lines me up this opportunity to be an intern for a morning show in San Diego, which at that time they were number one morning show. Uh, their name was Jeff and It was two two guys. And I'll never forget, never forget going home and telling my dad that I had an opportunity. I had an opportunity to go in and meet the boss to see if I can get this internship, which is for free, by the way. And my dad loaded me up with the goofiest looking clothes to wear. Oh, you gotta you gotta present yourself now. You gotta wear this tie that matches the socks, that matches the shoes. And I went in there looking like the biggest goofball on planet Earth, because if you look at the normal morning radio guy or any really buddy on radio, they're not all dressed up. It's the salespeople and such that are. So I showed up, and the gal says to me, "All right, just to let you know, this is not going to be the Jeff and Jaren and Bromo show. All right, you're not to talk to them. You're not to blah blah blah. You're going to sit in the back and blah blah blah, and you're going to work with the producer, and you're not going to talk to the stars, Jeff and Jar, All right." All right. So I go home and I tell my dad I, I got the job. I'm supposed to be there. The job. Remember, I didn't get paid for nothing. Had to be there at 430 in the morning. And this is when I'm starting to go out with my one of my best friends. And we're starting to do that circuit where you go out and hit bars and stuff. And uh I got to tell you, I got to tell you, when I started doing this waking up early stuff, it wasn't for me. I'll tell you what happens next to the segment on how when you start touring the bars late at night, you start double fisting your drinks, you're on the start of something that could be terrible for me. That was my start. This is There Is A Way Out. I really appreciate you listening. Uh, Once I get through my whole story, and I will, and I promise it won't be as long, I will have other people come on and we'll talk about their stories. We'll talk about what addiction means to them. There is a way out is designed for anybody who feels they may have a trouble. They may have trouble. And uh, there is a way out.